0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John, uh, right in front of the book of Revelation at the back of your Bible. We've been going through this uh, letter that the Apostle John wrote, and we are in chapter 3 this morning. So uh, John's goal in writing these letters was so that people could know him intimately, uh, and so that when false teaching happens, they would be able to recognize it right away. Um, You know, I don't think I've I've ever knowingly uh, had a counterfeit bill in my possession, but I was surprised to learn that at any given time, there are $70 million of counterfeit bills in circulation. Uh, That's only one counterfeit bill for every about 10,000 bills that are out there, uh, but that's too much. So you know the United States Treasury has a group of people that track down counterfeiters and uh, naturally these they need to know how to identify a counterfeit bill. But so how do they do that? Well it's it's actually kind of interesting that the, the most of their training comes not in looking at all the different counterfeits but in intimately knowing the real thing. Uh, they become so familiar with authentic bills That as soon as they see something that's counterfeit, uh, often just by feeling it, they'll know that it's a counterfeit. So John wants his readers to be able to identify false teaching immediately. And in this letter, he shows us lines, we've seen them already in the first couple of chapters, between Christ and the Antichrists, between light and darkness, between truth and falsehood, uh, between righteousness and sin and The love of the Father and the love of the world and the spirit of God and the spirit of the Antichrist. John wants us to know counterfeits when we see them, but to always deal with them in a spirit of love. That's what he's telling us. So let's read our passage and then we'll go back through it and talk about it. So 1 John chapter 3 verses 1 through 10. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And this is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right, is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So this is God's word for us this morning. So, the key verse, I think, uh, again, John's warning us against fake Christians. The key verse is verse 10. Look again at verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So imitation Christians, as John calls them in verse 10, children of are what John calls them, children of the devil. Uh, But instead of listing all the evil characteristics of Satan's children, these verses give us a a clear description of who we are as God's children. In chapters 1 and 2, John talked about practicing righteousness and about loving Christians in spite of our differences. And then in these first 10 verses of chapter 3, he talks about practicing righteousness like he has already in chapters 1 and 2. But now his emphasis is on us being God's children. And that's our motivation for being righteous, living a righteous life. Uh, Because a Christian is born of God, he will practice righteousness. Again, back to verse 9. Uh, No one who is born of God will continue to practice sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on practicing sinning because they have been born of God. So to practice sin, in other words, is sin as a way of life. Um, John is not talking about when we occasionally sin. No Christian is sinless. Can I have an amen to that? Amen. Yeah, that's right. We all know that, that we struggle with sin. That's just the way it is. So if you remember back in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, uh, John writes, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we all sin. We all struggle with it. But God does, and this is on your outline, God does expect us to sin less, to, to not sin habitually, to not continue in a lifestyle of sin. And there are so many examples in the Bible of of, of sin. In fact, every single person in the Bible is a sinner except Jesus. Um, and, and, you know, we, we could come up with a long list, but I've, I've mentioned here Abraham and, and Moses and Peter and what their sins were. <coughs> uh, you know, the Bible, one person has a book called, uh, Erwin Lutzer wrote a book called Failure, the Back Door to Success. And he says that the Bible is a book of failures that God turned into his successes. Doesn't that describe all of us? We're all failures. We're, we're all hypocrites. We're trying, though, to love God. We're, we're growing in our love for God, hopefully, but we all fail. And, but it's God who turns us into his successes. Uh, and, and the list we have here could go on, but, but these men uh, all admitted their, their sin They went to God and asked for forgiveness and then it was not their practice to continue in sin. They sought to live righteously before God. And so that, and this is on your outline, that's a characteristic of someone who is not a genuine Christ follower. They live a life of habitual sin. Sin, especially the sin of unbelief, is part of what they do as their normal course of life. Uh, The difference is that a true Christian knows God. They have a relationship with God. That that relationship, hopefully, is a growing relationship. A a counterfeit Christian may talk about God. They may be involved in religious things or religious activities, but they don't really know God. They don't really have a personal relationship with God. Uh, So in the verses that we're looking at today, John gives us three reasons to live a holy life as God's children. The first one is, and this is number one on your outline, that God the Father loves us. You know, you can sum up, God's love for us is unique, and, and you can sum up really the whole of, of New Testament teaching, and that's kind of hard to do, but I think you could sum it up with this sentence, that it's a, the New Testament is a revelation of the knowledge of God as one's father, of course, through Jesus Christ. That's how we come into a personal relationship with God. Father, uh, J.I. Packer says, is the Christian name for God. You don't see that name in the Old Testament, but you do in the New Testament. Father is the Christian name for God. And, and he wrote a book called Knowing God, J.I. Packer did. And, and if you've never read that book, I would highly recommend it. It's, it's, uh, it was one of the most impactful books to me as a young Christian especially. But there's a quote on your outline from that, that book. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all father is the Christian name for God so verse one says see what great love the father has lavished on us and if you're in the habit of underlining in your Bible and I hope you are that's a good habit to get into underline those words great love and the word lavished that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. In in Romans chapter 5, the apostle Paul writes that while we were God's enemies, he sent Jesus to die for us. We didn't have to earn being good enough for Jesus to come and die for us. He died for us while, while we were his enemies. There's no sin that I can commit that is stronger than God's love for me. You know, I used to tell my kids, you know, there's nothing that you can do that will make me love you any less. Uh, they put that to the test sometimes, but uh, but that's the truth. I love them. and And even though my love might falter, God's love for us never falters. His love for us is unfailing. Every sin, past, present, and future, has been done away with on the cross. Think about how many of your sins that you have already committed, that you will commit today, and that you will commit in the future, how many of them were in the future when Christ died on the cross? All of them. All of our sins, not just the past sins. All of our sins are forgiven. And God's love is unfailing towards us. His love is eternal. And it's a love that he has lavished on us. He's he's poured it out on us you realize if we go to Jeremiah, if we go to Ephesians, we find out that God, that before you were born, God set his love on you. And he pursues you. And he continues to pursue you. He will never stop pursuing you as long as you live. God's always trying to get your attention and draw you to himself. I find it a great encouragement that on the day that I see Jesus, He will be happier to see me than I will be to see him. And he is, I'm really excited to see him. Think about that. In other words, God didn't send his son to die for you on a cross so that the first time you look into the face of God, you see a scowl of disappointment. That's not why he sent Jesus. The whole incredible plan of salvation begins with the love of God. C.S. Lewis called Jesus the hound of heaven who is always after you. He is. I love that description. In 1 John 3.1, look at verse 1 again, could be translated like this. Behold what peculiar, out-of-this-world kind of love the Father has bestowed on you. Think about that. What does it mean that God lavished his love on us? You know, you've all probably seen it in movies. Maybe you've experienced this yourself when you were in a dating relationship. Someone said they have the, they declare this great love for you. I love you so much. And then a few weeks later, that love is gone. They, they, they don't really love you that much. Um, and maybe at that moment it was a great love, but the problem is that it wasn't like God's love. It wasn't immutable. It wasn't irreversible like God's love. It changed. Our love is fickle. Our love changes. Our love is not trustworthy. But God's love is. Look at kind of uh, at what love God had. It was a love that's based on God's character. And God is eternal. So his love is eternal. It, it never ends. His love, since God is faithful, his love is faithful. God lavishes this love on us. He can't, God cannot lie. It's impossible. For him to lie. You've got this on your outline. It's impossible for God to renege on his promises. The phrase in the middle of verse 1. And that is what we are. Is there to drive home this reality. The reality that God loves you. That he is pursuing you. That he is the hound of heaven after you. We are God's children. So why children? Well because children are dependent. God wants us. We need to be dependent on him. Children are needy. We need help. How do we get the help that we need? We get it by gathering together like we are this morning and fellowshipping together and encouraging each other. And so much the more as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. We we need to be in the word on our own. That's how God ministers to us. His word is eternal. His word will minister to your heart. We need to communicate with God. That's through prayer. That's how we talk to God. And so that's how we get the help that we need from God. We don't expect the world to get this because they don't understand God. It's only a person who knows God through Christ who can fully appreciate what it means to be a child of God. First John 3 1 tells us that we are God's children. And then 1 John 3, 2 tells us what we will become. Look at verse 2. <clears throat> the reference here is to Christ appearing. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, to Christ's second coming. He is coming back. We don't know when it is. If, it, if it's going to be before the end of this service, the people who are going to get baptized are going, wait a second, I want to get baptized. Well, you know what? We want even more for Christ to come back. We don't know when it's going to happen. It might happen in a year. It might happen in a month. It might happen in a week. We don't know when he's coming back, but we need to be ready. We talked about that. So he says in, 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 this, in verse uh, verse 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Paul in Philippians 3 talks about having a glorified body. Uh, you know, that's just unbelievable that we will be like him when we see him. <clears throat> you know, we have all kinds of, among us, people who have been involved in Bible translation. And they have all kinds of stories. I've heard some of them about translating different verses. I heard a story about one guy who was translating this particular verse. And he, uh, the guy who was translating with him said, he just couldn't believe that we would be like Jesus someday. <clears throat> and he said, this is just too much. It should be that we shall be permitted to kiss his feet. Not that we will be like him, but that is the truth of God's word. We will be like him. This is the truth. This is, we will see his face and we will be conformed to his image. I don't know how that's going to happen. But, but I do know that this is, this is what God promised. And we talked about the second coming last week as being an incentive for living a holy life. And now that's repeated with this additional truth that, that, that we'll be like him, that we will have these, these glorified bodies. Won't it be great to have a glorified body? Can I get an amen to that one? Yeah, we want glorified bodies. In Philippians 3.21, that God will transform our lowly bodies, that we will be like his glorious body. Paul says it there as well. Our bodies will be suited for heaven. How will that be? I'll give you a good theological answer. I don't know. But God knows, and I can't wait. And then in verse 3, John tells us that we should be uh, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This hope is, is a confident certainty. It's not like, well, I hope it can happen. It might happen. It might not. No. It's a confident certainty that God is going to conform me to the exact image of his son. And consequently, that should motivate me to continually pursue a life of purity. Purity and holiness, just as Jesus is pure and holy. Eugene Peterson, in his translation of of the New Testament, The Message, says that in verse 3, he says verse 3 like this, all of us who look forward to his coming, stay ready with the glistening purity of Jesus' life as a model for our own Jesus said in Matthew 5.8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's what we want to strive for. When an unbeliever sins, they sin against the Creator. When we sin, as believers, this is on your outline, when a Christian sins, we sin against our Father who loves us. That's who we sin against. You know, there was a group of teenagers who were partying and they went they were they were talking among themselves. They decided to go to a bar that they weren't supposed to be able to get into, but they, they, they knew they could get into this bar. And this one girl said to her date, you know, I think I'd rather you take me home. And some of her friends heard this and kind of were giving her a hard time. And they said, why do you think your father's going to punish you? And I thought she had a, an amazing response. She said, no, you know what? I'm not afraid of my father hurting me, but I'm afraid of me hurting my father. that should be our attitude anytime we're tempted to sin. I don't want to hurt my father. The second reason that John gives us to live a holy life is that God the Son died for us. Jesus gives us two reasons why Jesus came. The first one, and again on your outline, is that Christ appeared to take away our sins. Verse 5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And there are lots of definitions of sins, maybe more explanations of, of sin in the Bible. You've got it on your outline. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. The thought of foolishness is sin. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, to them it is sin. All unrighteousness is sin, and it goes on. But these verses that we're looking at in 1 John can be confusing, but I I want to try to be as clear as I can. If John is saying that Christians never sin, then no one is saved. That's not what he's saying. Uh, Even on your best Holy Spirit-led day, you sin. Uh, I think it was Alexander McLaren, the great preacher, who said, I don't know that I've ever had a completely 100% pure thought in my whole life. I don't know if I've ever done anything completely with pure motivations. Sin just is, is, it it infuses everything we do. We can't get away from it. But we can be cleansed from it. We can be forgiven from it. Uh, Remember that these verses, in, in these verses, John is communicating to us as believers, how to have intimacy with God. This is God like every book in the Bible. It's God's love letter to us. So verse 6 starts out, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And at the end of verse 5, it says, and in him, in Christ, is no sin. So whoever remains or abides in him, while we're abiding in him, we can't sin. When we do sin, we're not abiding in him. So the problem is this, when we sin, we're, we're not remaining in Christ. And, and so on your outline, it's this, in our heart of hearts, we are rebels against God, and this is the essence of sin. You know, there was a father who was out for a drive with his daughter in, their car, in, his, in his car, and uh, <clears throat> he told the daughter uh, who got out of her seatbelt, you need to sit down and put your seatbelt back on. And she didn't do it. And so he said a second time, I will pull over if I have to, but you have to put your seatbelt on now. And she still didn't do it. And he said, okay, now you're going to you're, you're have to have a punishment if you don't put your seatbelt on. She finally put her seatbelt on. And a couple minutes later, she said to her dad, I have my seatbelt on, but in my heart I'm standing up. <laughs> but that's all of us. We're all rebels against God. We, we, we want to do the right thing, but in our hearts, we just, are, our nature is that we're sinners. Paul calls non-Christians who have a lifestyle of sin enemies of the cross of Christ. So again, John gives us these reasons why we, why he came and died. First of all, that we just looked at to take away our sins. And secondly, that Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. You've got that on your outline. Christ appeared to destroy the devil. The works of the devil. Verse 7. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. So the logic here is clear. If a man knows God, he will obey God. He will want to obey God. If he belongs to the devil, he's going to want to obey the devil. He won't want to obey God. And so John explains it in verse 8. Look at verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So our enemy, the devil, has many names in Scripture. You've got a list of some of them there. But whatever you call him, keep in mind that his goal, he can't get to God, so he's going to go after God's children. His goal is to destroy you. That's his goal. Satan is out to destroy us. Uh, and Satan is not the opposite of God. He's the chief rebel against God. C.S. Lewis said this, you've got the quote on your outline, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Jesus is God, but he was a willing servant. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Satan was a servant who wanted to become God. We do battle against Satan and we do battle against the army of demons. And we need to be armed for that battle, like Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, take on the full armor of God. And what's the one offensive weapon we have? It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so we need to invest time in knowing the word of God. The last phrase in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The idea of destroy is to rob of power. Satan hasn't been destroyed yet, but his power has been reduced. And he is still a mighty foe, but he is no match for us as believers because we're going to look at this in, in some, uh, at some point. 1 John 4.4 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So you have the power of God In your life, you never have to fear Satan. You never have to fear going to battle with him because greater is he who is in you than he was in the world. For a number of months after World War II, uh, Japanese uh, were hiding all over caves and jungles all over the, the Pacific. And they had not yet, they were hiding because they had not yet heard that the war was over. And so they knew they needed to fight, but they didn't want to fight, so they were hiding. But when they found out, that, they, that when they understood that, the, that World War II had, had finished, they willingly gave themselves up. They surrendered because they didn't want to keep fighting. So we can rest in the truth that Satan is a defeated enemy. He's already been defeated. He may still win a few battles here and there, but he has been defeated. And we can glory in that. John doesn't say that that Christians are without sin. But he does say that Christians won't live in sin and that we have this Holy Spirit in our lives to do battle against Satan. We have the Holy Spirit in our lives to say no to sin. The third reason that John gives us to live a holy life is that God the Holy Spirit lives in us. God the Holy Spirit lives in us. Verse 9 starts out with these words, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. When someone receives Christ as Savior, changes take place in them. I think you can all look back, you who are Christ followers can look back and say, yes, I've seen changes take place in my life. The way I see myself, the way I see the people around me, the way I see the world being able to talk with God, those those are changes that take place. We have a new standing with God. When Jesus changes our lives, we want to live righteous lives for him. You know, there's a story about Queen Victoria that I read recently when she was about 12 years old. And apparently the people who were caring for her, looking out for her, wanted to, she was a, a little bit of a, of of a troublemaker and they felt that if she knew that she would eventually be the queen that she would turn into an unholy terror and so they tried to keep it from her as long as they could but eventually she found out and they were bracing themselves for her to become this unholy terror but interestingly enough the opposite happened she started behaving like this refined young woman and And someone asked her, what's the deal? Why are you acting the way you're acting? We're glad about it. But why are you acting this way? And she said, "Um, when I found out that, that I was going to be the queen, it just made sense that I should start acting like the queen that I would be. Wow. And God wants us to start acting like the children of God we will be when we are glorified in his presence with new bodies like his. So start acting like it now is what he's saying, is what John's saying. And so th- there's this holy, this, this holy exchange that takes place that, that we've, as Christians, we've experienced. And I think, personally, it's, it's one of the verses that best summarizes the message of the Bible, of the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf so that you could have the righteousness of God. What an exchange! God takes our sin and we take his righteousness and we get we get to live in him with that joy. That, that's incredible. In this exchange for sin, God, Jesus offers us his perfect righteousness. and when we place our faith in him, it's like Jesus, Uh, He he credits our spiritual bank account with his own perfection that we can always draw on. That's the glorious thing about this, the gospel that he offers everyone who receives it. And it's free to receive. This 2 Peter 1.4 says, you've got it on your outline, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, through his words, through the Bible, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Think about that. You and I participate in the divine nature. And the only way to enter God's family is by trusting Christ. Like First John 5, 1, back in, in chapter 5, we'll get there eventually, says that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that he is your savior? Just as physical children bear the image of their parents, so, so spiritual children, we, we need to bear the nature. We do bear it. We have it in our lives in seed form, but it needs to grow. And, and that needs to grow in us so that we become like Jesus. A, a Christian has an old nature from our physical birth, but we have a new nature from our spiritual birth. An old nature of our old it's described there you've got the two little columns on your on your outline our old man and the new man the, the flesh and the spirit the corruptible seed the god seed our responsibility is to live according to our new nature verse 9 no one who is born of god will continue to sin because god's seed remains in them they cannot go on sinning because they've been born of god i heard an american indian who's a pastor uh, describe it like this. He said, I have an old dog in me and the old dog is is battling and the new dog in me and they're both fighting each other. And the, the bad dog wants me to do bad things and the good dog wants me to do good things. And someone said, well, which dog wins? And he said, it's the one that I feed the most. So are you feeding the good dog? Are you spending time meditating on scripture and praying scripture for yourself and and memorizing it? A Christian who feeds on the new nature of the word of God and energizes it with prayer will, will know the power of God in his life. So Romans 13, Paul writes, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So you know the way spiritual decline happens? Spiritual decline happens first when sin invades our lives. And then instead of fighting, we yield to it. And then it's like an infection that sets in, and there's this gradual decline, and we eventually stop spending time in the Word. We stop spending time in prayer. And you know what the last thing is? C.S. Lewis said, people fall away from Christ not because they change their theology, but because they're out of fellowship. They stop. Fellowshipping with the with the body of believers, with the family of believers, they think I can do it on my own. I can watch, and I'm glad we have the option to be able to watch services online. So many of our shut-ins do watch that all the time. But when we're able, when we're available to come, we come and we fellowship together. We encourage each other. We, we and, and that's what that's what the writer to the Hebrews said. You have to do. All the more, all the more, if, when you see the day approaching of Christ's return, we need to gather together to fellowship. So, to stop spending time in God's word is just gonna, and stop fellowshipping is just going to lead to a decline. Here's the way James put it: It's on your outline. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God never tempted, is never tempted to do wrong, and He never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. And these desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives, it gives birth to death. The devil tries to deceive us. And John says in verse 7, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. And so we've titled this sermon, The Believer's Transformation. Sanctification is is the process of becoming holy. It's the process of becoming like Jesus. And and it's not just doing that. I think even more than that, that, it definitely includes that, but sanctification is primarily realizing more and more our need on a daily basis for the grace of God, that we need God's grace and how great that grace is. Jesus talked a lot about grace. You know, I remember one time taking a rental car back and it was like nearly an hour. It was like 58 minutes late. And I walked up. I was not very happy. I put the keys down and said, how much do I owe you? And uh, the lady said, you don't owe me anything. And I said, I'm almost an hour late. And she said, well, there's an hour grace period. And I was like, wow, what, what is that? What, and I, I took it, one, asking it just like, what is that? How long is the grace period? And she said, I, I don't know. Um, I think she was taking it maybe more theological than I meant it, but um, they don't have training on grace. I guess it hurts or wherever it was. Um, But but I, I guess what it means, she said, is that even though you're supposed to pay, you don't have to. I was like, that's pretty good. I like that. That's what God's grace is all about. And that's a free gift for you if you want it. That's what God, I I don't believe you're here by accident. I believe you're here because God is drawing you to himself. He wants you to know him. And so we yield ourselves to him. Paul said it like this in the J.B. Phillips translation. It's on your outline in Romans 12. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers and sisters, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice consecrated to Him and acceptable by Him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all His demands, and moves toward the goal of true maturity. Um... Our old nature is there. I heard a youth pastor describe it as the old Adam and the new Adam. And he said, you know what? The new Adam is Christ. And when I'm tempted to sin, if I send the old Adam to the door, I'm going to sin. If I send the new Adam, Christ, to the door, I won't sin. And so that's what we need to do. We need to send the new Adam, send Christ to the door when we're tempted to sin. And so Um, again, these words weren't written so that we could look at other people and say, oh, they need the Lord. No, they're to look at ourselves, our own lives. This is how we know who the children of God are, verse 10, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So, you know, after this sermon, I read this, and I'm thinking, man, you know what? I need to evaluate my own life. And so there's some questions at the end of the outline for you to examine your own life before God. Do I have the divine nature, like 2 Peter 1.4, like we read above, uh, with me, or am I pretending to be a Christian? Be honest with God. You're not fooling God where you are. Just be honest with Him. Do I cultivate this divine nature by daily Bible reading and prayer? Let me tell you, you are as close to God as you want to be. If you want to be closer to him, you can grow closer to him. And you do that, you know how to do that. We've talked about, it. we talk about it every week, being in the word on your own, talking with God in prayer, fellowshipping with other believers. Number three, has any unconfessed sin defiled my inner man? Am I willing to confess and forsake it? Unconfessed sin will rob you of joy. So confess it, live in the light. Do I allow my old nature to control my thoughts and desires, or does the divine nature rule me? We learn to bring every thought captive to Christ. And when temptation comes, do I play with it or do I flee from it? Do I immediately yield to the divine nature within me? 1 Corinthians 10.13 is is a a passage that's on the outline. Memorize that. That will help you know that there's always a way out of temptation but I hope you'll spend some time evaluating your own life as a result of our time together here. Let's pray.